Well, good afternoon and welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian. I am co-hosting today, filling in for Dave Robson. He's uh, a little under the weather, so if you find it in your heart to take a moment to pray for Dave uh, for his quick recovery so he can get back in here and uh, do what he does best, and that's a lot of things. <laughs> we love having you here, Adrian. Oh, it's a blast. It's, it's been great to have you here as uh, the pinch hit host. I love it. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm my pleasure. It's the best. Uh, we uh, <clears throat> really value the time that we spend here as a community because this gives us a chance to really engage with people, not just in our local community, but all over the globe. So if you have questions about um, your faith, about whether or not you can trust the historicity of the Bible, or questions about world religions, or just a Bible passage that uh, you've pondered upon and you really want to know kind of a deeper insight into what it means and how to apply it to your life, please join us. Ask. <clears throat> These uh, programs are every weekday, 5 to 6 p.m., and you can follow us along on multiple social media platforms. Uh, we are always live streaming to uh, Facebook, and for some reason my uh, computer is not broadcasting my screen to that, so we'll just have to forego that for the moment. But you can uh, take his word for it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> you can uh, follow us along on Facebook. Our Facebook handle is at CCF Tucson. So if you just go to facebook.com forward slash at CCF Tucson. And if you don't have Facebook and you are one of those anti Facebook people, uh, we also live stream to YouTube. I didn't and know there was an anti-Facebook movement. It's growing. It's, it's, it's new growing. every day. May their tribe increase. Yeah. yeah, it's actually increasing. It's surprising. A lot of my younger friends in their 20s and early 30s are just abandoning Facebook uh, because of the censorship and various things. But uh, we also live stream to YouTube. Our YouTube channel is at A Reason for Hope 546. And that's with no numbers as far as the four is, like you see on the logo here at the bottom of the screen. Um, and if you do happen to follow us on any of these social media platforms, we really appreciate it if you would like, subscribe, share, comment, hit the notification bell, all those good things, because it helps us uh, gauge how many people are engaging with us, but also helps grow our audience. Uh, you can also follow Pastor Scott Richards uh, on his Twitter uh, uh, feed, or <laughs> we don't call them channels, do we? On his Twitter, <laughs> on Twitter, and his you handle call is... call that a channel, could you? I don't know if that's that's a party it's foul page. or not. Anyway, yeah. we're here on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's actually quite um, insightful. There's always some comedic uh, tweets as well. But uh, his Twitter handle is at Scott R four H, which stands for Scott Reason for Hope. There you go. Go figure. Classic Sesame Street diction. And he does check it uh, regularly. So if you have a question and you want to just tweet the question, we will get to it. Uh, you can also follow us um, on our website. That's calvarychristianfellowship.com. If you hit the watch tab on the on the navigation on the menu, uh, you'll t it'll take you to our live stream on our website. We have a live stream, and you can actually you know join the conversation. You can actually ask questions right there on our website. That's right. Without utilizing any of the social media platforms, which is pretty neat. <clears throat> we also have a app. You can just search for CCF Tucson in the iTunes and, of course, the Google uh, Play Store. Download the app. Use it on any mobile device. You can. Uh, it has a little built-in Bible. You can join prayer groups, messaging boards, events. You can live stream all our services. And we also have our archives Excuse uh, me. from past, <laughs> <laughs> past services there. And uh, you can also watch us on Roku and Amazon. We live stream our services. So if you have a Roku or an Amazon 
Prime account where you want, can watch live TV or live channels, then you can go there as well. And if you kind of want to be a little more anonymous and you want to just email your question, you can do so at questionsforhope at gmail.com. With that being said, before we get to our first question for today, uh, let's take a moment to pray and ask the Lord to be with us. Yeah, you'd like to pray for us, Sean? Sure. Yeah, let's do it. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be in your word and to share it with your people. Give us your spirit to be able to share those words effectively, meaningfully, and to the hearts and minds of those who are listening. Thank you that you first implanted this in our hearts, and we ask that we would share not from the opportunity, but the overflow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Right on, true. So our first question for today is about the divine nature of Jesus Christ and whether or not Jesus is divine. And what, the question was, how was the question framed? Because I didn't actually... The question was sent along from a Muslim friend who was very stumbled by the idea that Jesus was a man. How could God be human, or how could human be divine? And since it's coming from a Muslim worldview, the best place to start is with a source they take seriously. Unfortunately, that source tells them to take the Bible seriously, but one step at a time. Yeah, this... and, and you regularly interact uh, with uh, people coming from uh, a Muslim perspective, and this is really the crucial issue, isn't it? Is it, How can you call Jesus God if he was a man? If there were three things that any Christian ministering to Muslims needs to get down, that is two of them. <laughs> so when it comes to the issue of does Jesus claimed to be God. How did Jesus claim to be God? The objection that Jesus can't be God because God and human are mutually exclusive. What you're going to oftentimes hear, and this is preparation for those who are reaching out to Muslims, is that do you believe that God got hungry? You believe that God needs sleep. You believe that God came out of a woman, and if depending on their personality, they may get more and more vulgar beyond that. But the goal is to draw attention to the fact, especially, that God is not dependent on his creation to exist like we are. So if you're to say that God is human, or that God even became a man, he became less than he was. And to their credit, we would agree that if someone presents God in a way that's contrary to his nature, if an atheist, for example, were to tell us, your God did something evil, your God lied, your God committed genocide, your God did this and that, we'd say, time out, there's certain fundamental things about God that you're misrepresenting. You're literally describing a square circle here. You're characterizing a being that can't do those things as one that is doing them, and then we'd work backwards from there. The problem is that when people say, well, this extends just one step further, you believe that Jesus was a man, which is 100% correct, yeah. and you believe that Jesus was God. So which is it? Because God, by definition, is not limited like man. And this is a worldview that's handed to them by their Quran in Surah 575, where it makes the point of emphasis that Mary was only a human, and they both, referring to Jesus and Mary, ate food as a dismissal, a disproving of the fact that Jesus could have been a god. Let me read the whole passage. Uh, this is from the Pictal translation. Messiah, the son of Mary, was only a messenger. Messengers before him passed away. His mother was just a woman. They both ate food. Behold how we make clear the signs to them, and then behold how perverted they are. Uh, this is the commentary, by the way, Tafsir Jalalain, one of the 
more authoritative commentaries on the Quran, and an early one at that, Messiah, the son of Mary, was none other than a messenger sent to the people, messengers the like of whom had passed away before him, and his mother was a saintly woman, and they both used to eat earthly food. They were both servants who used to eat food. See, O Muhammad, how we make the revelations, the signs that Jesus and his mother were not gods, clear for them, and see, O Muhammad, how they are turned away through lies. This is, again, the top seer of uh, Ibn Abbas. So when we're talking about the concerns that Muslims are going to have with the deity of Christ, this is the primary passage they're going to turn to and others that repeat this point over and over again. The status of human is incompatible with the status of deity. Like we've mentioned before and done this briefly, there's a way to go on the offense with this, is to emphasize the Quran itself doesn't agree with that sort of handling. When it comes to the virgin birth, for instance, Mary asked, how can I have a son if I have not been unchaste? And and Gabriel explains to Mary, Allah can just say, be, and it is. He is beyond all And this is from Muslim sources. This is from the Quran, the primary source of Islam. So it actually answers their question. Yeah, if Allah were to decree that God were to become a man, he could say, be, and it would be. These are sound Islamic doctrines. But if, on the other hand, the Quran's going to be in conflict with itself and put forward this idea that, of course, God can't become a man, God can't enter his creation because such a thing's beneath him, it's a question of either, A, are they representing our belief properly, that we believe that Jesus was only a man, or that Jesus was, and here's where Christians might get thrown, only God the Son. That's but where not we a need man. But not a man. That's what we need to clarify. The other interesting thing is that, and I can go into this as far as the Quran is concerned, but you're here to hear the Bible, and frankly, I agree with you. I prefer it. The point of emphasis is to at least meet the Muslim a quarter of the way. Understand and give them the respect that, hey, I know where you're coming from, but there's a misunderstanding here. I'd love to explain if you'd let me in order to clarify our terms. Now, when we claim that Jesus, for example, ate food. As a man, would that show that he was dependent on food to live? Would he get hungry? Would he get thirsty? Would he become physically weaker as a result of depriving himself, like we read in Matthew chapter 4? Yeah, absolutely. Now, when Jesus ate food, as a (laughs) God-man, this will be our uh, our key word for the day. Yeah. Would he become weaker if he deprived himself? Would he become tired? Would he become hangry? Not, not in his divine nature, no. So there's two things going on here that the Bible describes. Philippians chapter 2 is a good place to start. John chapter 1, plenty of places. But if we're going to define Jesus as God and as man properly, we're not describing a paradox. We're describing something unique. And normally, when something's unique, I don't say, there's nothing else like that, therefore it's false. I say, let me look more into that, because I haven't seen that before. There is no other God-man. There is no other entity, like God the Son, who entered into human history, adopted human nature, remained, here's the key, fully God and fully man at the same time, functioned as such, and now eternally exists as a glorified man. But the Muslim objection still stands. He ate food. He went to the bathroom. You think that God does those things? 
Well, what would be our biblical response to that? Well, our biblical response is you need to have the whole picture. And just as you mentioned, you know, the, uh, the Bible, you know, does say, uh, and, and probably the best passage to come to, to get real clarity in all of this, is in the book of Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. Here we get a description of the nature of Jesus himself. Here it says, Let this mind be also in you, starting at verse 5 here, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God. Uh, the word form there means the absolute essence of what it means to be God. Not God-like, not sort of like God, not godly, but God. There's no stronger way to describe Jesus being God mm. than that particular term. Uh, he did not consider robbery to be equal with God, literally something to grasp or to hold on to, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. Now, when someone will say, well, you know, I don't know of this idea about him, uh, you know, being the absolute essence of God, well, you would also have to say that Jesus was less than the essence of a total bondservant as well. Uh, because he took that same form, same word there. He was the epitome, the absolute perfect example of what a servant was all about. In the same way, he was the perfect example of who God is. Mm. That's why he said, he who's seen me has seen the Father. Not someone like the Father or Father-like, uh, but the essence of who God is at mm. that particular point. But then it goes on to say, uh, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, now notice it emphasizes that he is in the likeness of men. The idea of likeness is the same word we get our term facsimile from. In other words, uh, to take a look at Jesus in the physical form, you would see a man uh, with very few exceptions to that rule. Perhaps at the transfiguration, you would see the glorified God-man. But if you walked down the street and saw Jesus, uh, you'd be reminded of what Isaiah 53 said about him. You know, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He looked like an ordinary person. He didn't glow. He didn't have a high beam halo over his head uh, the whole time. But notice it says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This word to humble yourself here is a really uh, interesting word. In the original language, Greek word kanao, that means an emptying out. Uh, you know, it carries the idea that Jesus never ceased to be God uh, when he became a man, but he voluntarily set aside the privileges and prerogatives of being God while he was a man in order to be a perfect representative to us. You see, if Jesus was just God in an apparition that floated through the earth, that doesn't really help me as far as him being the, the apostle, the, literally the trailblazer of our faith. The idea of following Jesus in this world, as the scripture tells us to do, wouldn't have a whole lot of meaning because, you know, how can I possibly live up to uh, divinity? But because he was a man, you see, because he was the God-man, he demonstrated what it was like, for instance, to go through times where we'd be tempted to be hangry, uh, get that man a Snickers bar kind of a thing. Mm -hmm but he didn't sin. He knew what it was like to go without sleep, and yet that human nature that he had was never corrupted by sin. He was absolutely perfect in that human nature. Those two natures, if you will, and you guys follow along with me here because greater minds than mine have spent lifetimes trying to plumb the depths of what I'm about to say to mm -hmm. you. The two natures 
of God and man were fused in the person of Jesus without being confused. In other words, one didn't dominate the other. So when Jesus was a man, he played the man. I mean, if you really want to uh, throw down the gauntlet on all of this, uh, you would have to say, well, Jesus felt pain. How can God feel pain? Well, we do see in the scripture that God communicates at least emotional pain as he sees uh, his people wandering away from him. As we saw last uh, week in our study in Ezekiel, God talked about feeling crushed by their spiritual idolatry. So yeah, God does feel in a sense, but uh, you know, to say, uh, well, uh, God can't feel uh, and God can't uh, touch. I, it would be very strange to me if in the Quran there aren't examples of, say, Allah being angry, correct? Plenty. Plenty. Uh, Allah being joyful? No. Not very many. Uh, kind of a one-dimensional sort of a, a deity that they've mm-hmm. invented there, but certainly one that does have emotions. You know, you could turn around on them. You're saying, so you're saying that God gets upset and angry about things? I thought uh, God was completely other, completely separate from his creation. Isn't he above and beyond all of that? And so, that's what you have to press home. If you want mm-hmm. to go on the defensive, define your terms. If you want to go on the offensive, make them play by their rules. And another great way of doing this is to just pick one piece of Islamic doctrine that may be beyond their pay grade. Any will do. And, of course, if you hold them accountable to it, obviously you and I can wax eloquent on the hypostatic union, barely scratch the surface. If you were to ask a Muslim, you know, fundamental doctrine, we believe in one God. Okay, where do you get that from? Oh, it's the doctrine of Tawheed, the oneness of Allah. Yeah, great. You just described it, but you haven't answered my question. Oh, well, where is Tawheed in the Quran? It's not in there. It's a doctrine, if they're being honest. And then you can hammer them on that. Okay, so one nature, one essence, one personality. What's about him? Is this, well, Bila Kaif, uh, uh, without how, Allah knows these things. Ah, so there's something complicated about your God that you can acknowledge and celebrate as a demonstration of his majesty, but I can't? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's another good way of doing this. Make them play by their rules. But understand, you want the relationship to be intact first. If you can establish with them that you only intend to communicate truth insofar as what you're communicating, the first and most important thing you'll have to clarify again and again and again is that, yes, you don't believe this. I do. You asked me what I believe. Let me. Yeah. Remember that. Yeah. Very good. Great stuff. Well, Craig Hopkins wants to know, the names Jesus was given all through Scripture have meaning. Mm-hmm. Why wasn't God, who walked with Adam in the garden, referred to as Jesus? Because Jesus' name means God our Savior, and before Adam and Eve need saving, why would they relate to him as that? Uh, the significance I of Jesus... answer the question. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll just give yeah. a verse so that you don't have to take my word for it. Matthew one twenty one. it's explaining why you're going to name him Jesus. Uh, she, referring to that which is conceived in hers of the Holy Spirit, it says she will bring forth a son and you will call his name Jesus. Why? For he will, not as has, will save his people from their sins. So you mentioned, Craig, names have meaning. It's not going to have a lot of meaning if that significance hasn't been fulfilled yet. When Jesus incarnated, he took on flesh, he would adopt that name because that was the purpose for which he came to this world, to save us. Before he saved us, he wouldn't be called our Savior. That's past tense. Yeah, I think that nailed it. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) 
Jordan Fee's back. Swish. <laughs> and that's the game. Uh, Michael wanted <clears throat> us to ha- see if we'd be willing to take a little more time to address yeah. his question from yesterday. Uh, there's a, a program on HBO Max uh, based on a video game called The Last of Us. And in uh, two of the episodes, the, the second episode primarily <clears throat> depicts And a, many more in the future. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, uh, uh same-sex relationship, and he wanted to know if, uh, would this be contradicting my Christian beliefs, and would I be okay watching this TV show if I skipped those episodes? Yeah, when it, I mentioned it briefly, kind of tongue-in-cheek, but the point stands. Uh, the video game was better, and make sure it's the first video game, not the second. The Last of Us Part Two was nothing more than a propaganda stunt, and the fans agreed with me. Uh, when it comes to the nature, and this is briefly summarizing Peter's answer yesterday, and I encourage you to listen to it because it got to the point, of art. First of all, don't expect everyone, especially those who aren't Christians, to share your worldview. I definitely rejoice sometimes when, by accident, non-believers end up communicating more of the gospel than they think. You can check out my YouTube channel where I point out those things regularly. But when it comes to The Last of Us or any piece of media that has not just a gratuitous but even a glorification of fundamentally anti-Christ lifestyles and giving pictures of things that just simply aren't reality. Uh, Dedicated a whole episode to basically foreshadowing the whole story, but in the uh, dynamics of a homosexual couple. What's important to note is that while there is certainly a check in your spirit about these sort of things, the first thing I would always encourage people to do when consuming media and seeing things that are worldly is 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where he notes, and speaking to the Church of Corinth, who were surrounded by a lot of The Last of Us HBO specials, I did not tell you, or I told you not to keep company with sexually immoral people, but I certainly did not mean the sexually immoral people of this world, or covetous or extortioners, idolaters, because then you would need to go out of the world. But I encourage you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous, adulterer, idolater. And the reason for that is because They're brothers. They share the common relationship we have with God and therefore can be held to that standard. When you're consuming media, you're not essentially going to a church service. You're not gathering with like-minded people, that's what church means, in order to cultivate and build each other up in the knowledge of the true and living God. You're literally watching entertainment, produced as such and sometimes I'll grant you with ulterior motives like the second video game. But The Last of Us Part 1 was literally just a wonderful story about a father and a daughter type relationship. They weren't literally father and daughter, but you get the point. A good story is a good story. You you can watch uh, pagan accounts like Thor Ragnarok, or not Thor Ragnarok, uh, God of War Ragnarok, where Kratos and Atreus have that kind of dynamic as well. You can watch uh, secular sci-fi like Aliens where Ripley and Newt have that sort of mother-daughter relationship as well. And while given enough time, I might be able to discuss something biblical in that, we can just watch it and say it's a good movie. That's the first thing. When we go to the world and expect Jesus, we're confusing our terms. That's the first point. The second point I think is equally important, and Peter made that point yesterday as well, albeit briefly, more briefly than he would have liked to, when we're consuming media, obviously we need to be sensitive to our conscience. 
if there's a check in our spirit about the things that we struggle with, for example, I have to watch the lust of the eyes in particular because I know that's an area I'm vulnerable in. If media is going to portray gratuitous violence, gratuitous language, gratuitous, you know, yeah. not sexuality, I don't really care. It doesn't phase me that well. Not because I'm jaded, but because God's done a work in my life where I can look past those things and search for the more meaningful aspects of it, like his word. But when clothes start coming off <laughs> or sounds start being made that point that direction, I have to step back, not because those things are evil. Yes, it is a perversion, but I am being sensitive to my own conscience. I'm listening to the Holy Spirit and acknowledging my weakness and saying what could be gained from this I also have to carry or I have to measure against what I could lose from this, and that is fellowship with God. This is becoming a distraction to me. This is an area of vulnerability for me. So in what we do, in what we consume, what we take in, can this be sanctified by the Word of God in prayer, a la 1 Timothy chapter 3? Yes, absolutely, anything can. But if, on the other hand, we'd say, it's getting harder and harder every single day, which is also true. Then I can ask myself, is this worth not just the effort, but the heartache of the journey? We see films becoming more and more inundated with not just homosexuality, but pedophilia, with bestiality, and every other deviation of what is encompassed in Scripture, sexual immorality. But should we be surprised? No, that's the world, 1 Corinthians 5. These are the people we're called to reach. But if you're sensitive to those things, be sensitive to conscience and don't cause your brother or yourself the opportunity to stumble, a la Romans 14. So when it comes to these things, just keep those two in mind. What Did I misquote Romans 14? No. Okay. Um, I, I'm watching your eye language in case I got a heresy <laughs> meter here. Keep those two things in mind, and I think you'll be okay. But when it comes to entertainment and media, don't expect anything less than the world to be the world. But also understand you're a child of God, and if God's given you victory in those things, take full advantage, use them for the glory of God. If not, then you would be better spent uh, watching or engaging with media that'll probably be more benefit to you. Paul himself said, all things are lawful to, for me, but what? Not all things are helpful. Right. And, and that's, that's the point. And I think that's a key thing. You know, the other thing that uh, comes up with a lot of, uh, boy, a lot of media these days is that, um, you know, first of all, it's very interesting to me that there's no original ideas out there. You know, basically what we've got here is a video game that was a rehash of essentially the Walking Dead series, which was a rehash of the George Romero, uh, Dawn of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead, zombie, you know, uh, sort of thing. Uh, you know, some uh, radiation comes from space and slowly people are crawling out of their graves. And, which I unfortunately you know. had nightmares over my entire youth because yeah. my parents made me watch those movies. <laughs> yeah, and, well, but but here you go. And, and uh, you know, first of all, you know, I, I realize there's a, a spin on this. And I, you know, from what the research I've been able to do on this, I have not watched it. So I will give that, that caveat. I don't doubt that it's well acted and, and engaging as far as the characters are concerned or people wouldn't watch it. But, uh, you know, one of the interesting thing, comments about it is, is that the overlying philosophical, theological message behind this is that all we are as human beings are simply another species who could find ourselves at the mercy 
of a different species um, rather than the uh, so-called uh, you know virus of the walking dead uh, nobody really knew where it came from it just came on the scene uh, no possible cure for it in fact there was a sort of a red herring dead end plot about one guy who said oh yeah if i can get to washington i i know how to cure this sort of thing and then it turned out no there is no cure for it uh, culminating in the, the the declaration we are the walking dead you know the the people that aren't zombies are really the walking dead because they've pretty much thrown away any vestige of humanity in the name of survival mm-hmm. uh, made horrible compromises and done murderous things and and so on just to stay alive uh, so you know what's the message of the walking dead we're spiritually dead there's no god who's going to come help us so i don't know just try to live as long as you can make the best of things interesting um you know the end of us uh, a major motif of the game is that life goes on and uh again uh the the interesting thing apart of it this the, the fundamental thing about this game is that it goes back to a segment of the bbc nature documentary planet earth uh, which featured a, uh, a segment on a particular type of fungus. And this fungus in, infects mainly insects, but it takes control of their motor functions and forces them to help cultivate the fungus. So what the what if behind this is, is what if there was a fungus like this fungus that made the jump from infecting insects and controlling them to spread this thing, and it started affecting human beings? It turns us into clickers. Yeah. So <laughs> you know the the, uh, the 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 bottom line is, you know, the fungus has evolved and now it's taking out human beings. Essentially, the message behind that is we as human beings aren't special. We're just part of this crazy nonsensical uh, universe that has no rhyme or reason to it. And here's where I think uh, the real damage comes in uh, with a steady diet. Of this stuff it reflects not just a worldview of naturalism that all things can be explained without god just by natural processes but it takes it a step further it takes you to the place of a philosophy called nihilism which means life means nothing so enjoy the trip yeah you want to preserve it great if you want to destroy it all the better the results are just the culmination of our decisions which ultimately to what end we can't say we can just say we like some things and others. There's issues of moral relativism. There's issues of uh, no absolute truth. It's the issue of, well, it's us against them, but then it's also them against us. And which one's right, which one's wrong, you have to take yeah, your pick. You know, one of the, uh, the designers of the game said that uh, a big part of uh, the game was a crucial moment where one of the characters had pretty much lost the desire to go home. Her name was Ellie, but uh, she had this encounter seeing this herd of giraffes. And uh, it was designed to reignite her lust for life, quote unquote. Uh, so, you know, the big question is, okay, a lust for life, but what is it? Why have a lust for life? Why go on if it's just about survival or happenstance encounters with human beings? Because uh, more often than not, the encounters with human beings in these sort of things are not positive. Especially in the sequel. You know, you do not really want it like the theme of the walking dead we are the walking dead Mm -hmm. that's what you get there and there's no way out you Mm -hmm. know uh one of the things that pretty much i've watched a few episodes of the walking dead 
and it was interesting because there was a possibility of resolution, but the more it went on and the more you discovered they just wanted to crank out more and more seasons, there was no resolution. There was no possibility of uh, finding a cure or, or anything like that. The, the, the zombie movie, I Am Legend, uh, you know, based upon the book, carried the idea that there was hope at the end of the line because the main character in the movie, Will Smith, uh, this epidemiologist finally figured out that it was his blood uh, that caused him to be immune to all of this and that by taking the elements of his blood to a place that was safe, they could come up with a place of redeeming all these people that had fallen victim uh, to this cure for cancer gone awry. Which is you know. the same role that Ellie plays in The Last mm-hmm. of Us, but the idea is, is she a real willing messiah, a reluctant source of hope? And that's why I recommend the first game over the second, because it ultimately mm. leads that resolution to a dead end anyway. But, but <laughs> all of this is to come back to the idea of Romans chapter 1. Uh, the, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who literally suppress or hold down uh, the truth of God in unrighteousness. Mm. Um, you know, the one individual you don't find in any of these things, even in the the unseen hand of providence at all is God. There is no God. So you got to muddle through and make it as mm-hmm. best as you can. And if there's moral compromises along the way, oh, well, say uh, la vie. Uh, you know, if, you know, say, for instance, a character like this Ellie, uh, you know, her, her life is being threatened, shooting a few people, killing a few people that might get in the way. It's okay because somehow, you know, you're serving a greater good. Well, what's the greater good? Who defines what the greater good is? And and to me, Not to sit down... Is there a greater good? What is the greater good? Yeah. I understand that. Yeah, and to me, I think, you know, being at least conversant in some of these things that people are watching, you know, like, say, The Walking Dead or I Am Legend or some of these uh, films like this, it can be good if it serves as a launch point to be able to discuss, okay, you know, what is life really all about? I go back to the Apostle Paul at Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. You know, he was there in Athens. He looked around. He was distressed by all the idols that were there, but he saw one altar to an unknown God. And uh, he used that as a launch point to be able to impact this culture and their worldview, beginning with where they were coming from. You know, he said, this God whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. Now, that probably had their attention riveted because every day on the way up to Mars Hill, they saw the altar to the unknown God. They knew the story behind it, uh, that a uh, philosopher by the name of Epimenides, there was a plague that was sweeping through Athens. There was no cure for it. They'd called on all the other gods. And uh, what this Epimenides said was, your problem is your gods are really not God. There's a God above these gods who's invisible. You can't make him into an idol. We need to make an altar to him. And when they did, the plague stopped. So, you know, in their culture, in their mind, this idea of an unknown God who was above all of their man-made kind of gods mm-hmm. uh, was something that was very curious to them. And just to be able to say, not only is there an unknown God, not only uh, has he revealed himself to us, but he has manifested himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He's given proof to all that he is this unknown God you've been worshiping by rising from the dead. 
him I proclaim to you. Yeah. So if it's a springboard to the gospel, just make sure you get to the gospel. Yeah, yeah. So otherwise it's just sort of, yeah. you might as well be at uh, Comic-Con and mm -hmm. describe, uh, you know, rapping about uh, Star Wars or, you know, uh, whatever game you're into. So, but if we can use these things to focus people back on the person of Jesus Christ, I think that's a way to, to impact the culture. You know, we saw the, we've been talking about the Jesus Revolution uh, movie and uh, what that was all about. A huge part of reaching that culture was music mm. because that's what the youth of that time were really tuned into. Um, I don't think it's inappropriate to even use the avenue of being conversant or familiar with some of these video games uh, or some of these uh, you know, movies and things like this that are, are popular uh, to be able to create that same kind of a bridge mm -hmm. yeah. to say, you know, hey, you know, back in the, the, that day, uh, you're listening to the doors, uh, break on through to the other side, every taboo must <laughs> be broken, and yet look what's happening to the guys in the doors. Mm -hmm. Do you really see them becoming people you'd want to be? Uh, you know, after a while, anybody paying attention to, say, the Beatles, uh, including a song called the Sue Me, Sue You Blues about how they couldn't stand each other, mm. and they were supposed to be the sort of enlightenment, the source of enlightenment, uh, going on there. They couldn't even keep their band together, yeah. let alone bring world peace. Even you know, after spending time with the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you use that so as that a bridge times, yeah. to be able to say, you know, they were on to something, they just didn't go far enough. Mm. You know, there really is a need for, you know, they were right when they said all you need is love, but who defines what love is all about? Why do we find our experiences with love so unsatisfying? Because we were created for a greater love, a higher love, as Steve Winwood once sang about. Think about mm. it, there must be higher love, he said. Uh, you're onto something, but what if you could find that higher love? Mm. What if it has been revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ? So being, <clears throat> I guess what I'm saying is being culturally conversant mm -hmm. uh, with, with, with art. Um, art has been co-opted, I believe, by the forces of darkness, the forces of secularism, uh, the forces of authoritarianism, to be able to manipulate the minds and hearts of people. Uh, that's why our art today is so bad. Uh, it's lost its heart, it's lost its soul, if you will. Uh, but art can be and is something that uh, God can use. You know, I really love the conversation you guys had about uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and how Tolkien would say things like, you know, we are uh, created to be creators. Uh, you know, we, we have this instinct within us. Uh, we appreciate beauty. We appreciate truth. And the best way to understand beauty and truth is not to go into a lecture hall where someone on a, you know, whiteboard, mm -hmm. you know, diagrams, you know, different ideas about that. The way you resonate with people's hearts is through art. Mm. It is, it is mm -hmm. really the shortcut to the human soul. And if we can take the word of God and artfully, artistically minister it to people, or even show through the art that people are already allowing to influence their, their, their hearts and minds. You know, you're onto something with your mm -hmm. art, but that's, you gotta take it further. That's been one of the challenges of child rearing in the church is that because these things are secular, usually the response is, is that I don't wanna have anything to do with that, so I'm gonna pursue careers and education in areas that are not so ungodly. So we don't have as many Christian young men and women going to cinematography school or and wanting desiring to be directors and filmmakers. And and that's where the discernment comes in. Wouldn't you both agree that that if you're look if you're approaching 
art forms or media that has ungodly messages, that there does need to be some bit of discernment for yourself. If yeah. you're someone who's new as a believer, uh, you don't want to be <clears throat> taking down deceptive beliefs because you're not quite ready. But if you're approaching it as a well-grounded believer, analyzing it, looking for godly messages, but also how to sort of join the dialogue about what secular society is talking about, then it is appropriate so long as you're not tempting yourself. But there needs to be a guard put on. I think of that well, in Philippians. A, well, a grid. Yeah, Philippians 4.8 I think is a great grid. Yeah. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, if there's anything uh, worthy of, of praise, praise. Uh, let, let your mind think on these things. Mm -hmm. You know, well, you know, it's like, well, how can I keep all those those things together? Well, think about the person of Jesus. Mm. You know, use Christ's character as that grid, you know, and maybe the old saw is really true. I'm sitting there going through a video game, and it's becoming more violent, more nihilistic. Mm -hmm. Could I imagine uh, Jesus sitting down next to me and me handing him the controller and saying, hey, you know, <laughs> you, you want to play? <laughs> Might be like, uh, maybe I should be yeah. focusing in on it, something else. And if you are watching the program, I, I thought Peter made a good point. Uh, he and I were talking about it, and he said that the last episode of The Last of Us had a pro-life message. If you haven't seen the program, you can ignore that. But uh, if you have been watching it, um, it, it does contradict what happened in episode two with you know, the, there was a suicide pact. Yeah. <laughs> and then in the last episode, they said, well, even if I'm, you know, the, the two of the characters are, you know, two, I won't say who to spoil anything, but <clears throat> two of the characters get infected by this zombie-making uh, fungus. fungus. And uh, they decide, well, we can, we have probably a day or so before we turn. Should we just end our lives now? And they said, no, let's let's enjoy every moment we have to keep going down the path we've been going down. And so there's this pro-life message, which is kind of ironic in the whole series. But uh, anyhow, that's what we mean is you can find sometimes uh, joining the dialogue saying, well, what about survival and so on? <laughs> yeah, and, and obviously this is uh, skim off the surface, not even the froth of the drink, but just here's some bubbles for you. Talking to someone who's a fan of the Last of, Last of Us franchise, just focus on what they probably enjoy too. Say, okay, Joel wants to get Ellie to this place because he's got nothing left. He's lost his family. He doesn't have anything to live for. He develops a relationship with this girl. She may be the answer. A group even comes along claiming to do their job, the people that he's trying to get her to. Does he take the short route? Does he trust her with these people? No spoilers for the kind of decision he makes, but saying, who do you think you are in that situation? Obviously, you can consider yourself Ellie, think that you're the solution to all your problems, and you just have to put yourself in the right hands to be used for a greater good. But uh, whether that ends up being Joel or the in agency, I won't say who, is ultimately up to circumstance. You know what I think as a Christian? I think I'm Joel. I think I have the opportunity to do with the solution what I want. I can receive her personally, me referring to Jesus, recognizing I know these people. I trust these people to do right by me. I know Jesus rose from the dead. I know why I trust him, as opposed to all the people who claim, no, believe in our Jesus, what we'll do with him, and we can be the solution that you're looking for. And 
Sorry if that's a subtle spoiler, but not trusting them with that. The whole point being made is the conversation comes back to Jesus. If that is what you can do with it, then I think the time spent. The TV show, of course, is deviating very much from the game, so that's why mm-hmm. I wouldn't recommend it. That has nothing to do with the gospel. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, I think we addressed uh, not just the program itself, but the bigger issue of uh, the Christian the Christian and media, secular media. Mm-hmm. Uh, Annie wants to know, when it's said in the book of Revelation that one will be saved if one calls on the name of the Lord, obviously Jesus is being referred to, but why the actual word Jesus when that's not what his parents named him? In other words, I think what Anne's alluding to is that the English word Jesus was not the actual sounds that came out of his parents' mouths when yeah, they yeah, called sure. him. But uh, So why do we say Jesus? Is it is it the word, uh, and or is it the person that we're referring to when we use that name in our own language? Do you mean Romans? Yeah. I think, I think you're going to Romans, Romans 9 through 10. 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe with your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Which is quoting the book of Joel. <laughs> right, right. So, you know, when the, the subject comes up, okay, uh, some people here are really deeply into the Hebrew roots movement will say that if you don't call Jesus Yeshua, uh, if you use basically the, the transmogrification, I guess, it's closer of, to Greek. Of, of the Greek name into the English, um, that somehow that doesn't count, that doesn't take. Well, I think, uh, and, and hopefully, Annie, this will help you out a little bit, I think at, at just a cursory examination of this, uh, we can see why we don't have to worry about that. Because, let's face it, there were a lot of uh, uh, Yahshua's running around at that time. That was the name we would say Joshua was. There was a Yahshua in the book, of Joshua. Okay, well, if I put my faith and trust in the Yahshua that we find in the book of Joshua for my salvation, is that going to do me any good? He'd probably slap you upside the head. No, because I'm barking up the wrong tree. Why? Because it's not the name, it's who that person is who bears that name. The name is instructive. Yahweh is salvation, right? But the most important thing is the truth statements that that name represents. You know, it's, it's interesting how in Matthew uh, it says uh, that, uh, you know, again, the virgin birth happened in order to fulfill what was written in the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a, a child, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, was Jesus Emmanuel? Uh, with us, yeah. Yeah, God with us. Yeah, that's another aspect of his life. And so I guess to to simplify all of this, it's not, you know, the syllables, it's not the consonants. And by the way, Hebrew was a consonantal language. It didn't have vowels until the Masoretes came along and put them in because Hebrew was dying as a language and they wanted to show how to pronounce things. Thank you. But, <laughs> but, uh, but it was a, a totally consonantal language. You know, so does that mean that these vowel points that they put in, how can we be sure that they're accurate? How can we know that it's, uh, you know, again, uh, uh, Yahshua? Uh, We don't. We're inserting things into Mm. all of that. But the key thing is, what does the name represent? Who does that name describe and represent? 
If I look at the Lord, Jesus, and I understand that this person, Yahshua or Jesus, however you, I mean, Jesus, if you're a Spanish speaker, you know, I mean, we have some uh, followers in Africa who can probably tell us what, uh, how Jesus is pronounced in their local languages. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but it isn't the, the, the parsing of the lips that matters. <clears throat> it's who you're putting your faith mm-hmm. and your trust in. Uh, you know, the question always comes up, even according to Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So does that mean mm-hmm. that people who are mute cannot be saved because they cannot confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord? Mm-hmm. Well, to me, that's missing the whole point. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of confessing with your mouth is the overflow of what we have in our understanding, what we've come to believe, what God has revealed to us concerning the nature of his son. If we put our faith and trust in the who of who Jesus is, his virgin birth, his sinless life, his claim to be God, his verification of that claim to be God uh, by uh, demonstrating that the powers that only God could demonstrate, taking that sinless life, dying on a cruel Roman cross, for our sins, rising from the dead in a moment of history so that we can know that his truth claims are true. If I put my faith and trust in that cluster of truths regarding Jesus, or maybe even more simply that God loves me and he sent his son to die for me, John 3, 16. Uh, If I put my faith and trust in that, whether I can even articulate those words, say I'm struck mute, have a stroke and I can't speak. I've been at the bedside of people who can't speak, who've made decisions to receive Christ. I I think about my own dad when he was passing away. One of the final conversations I had with him was I said, you know, dad, I know know, we've talked about this, but, you know, just for my sake and for your sake, you know, if you made your peace with God, if you received Jesus as as your savior, and he was intubated, he couldn't talk. Uh, But I said to him, "If, if that's so, would you squeeze my hand? My dad just squeezed my hand as hard as he possibly could in the situation he was in. Was that confession? Yeah, I'd say that was confession, but nowhere are you gonna find in that passage, well, if you grab someone's hand and squeeze it really tight, you'll be safe. But it's the heart you see that matters. Man looks on the outward appearance, and that's where you get all messed up, but God looks on the heart. And so rather yeah. than looking at language as some sort of magic spell, it's not what you're saying, but who you're referring to. Right. And to add to that, I, I it's also important that that context is there of who you're talking to. In some situations overseas, I noticed that my translators would choose to use the more politically correct name for Jesus in Islamic countries where Islam was the predominant. And there was culturally, for example, in Bangladesh, there was a word for God that referred to Allah, and people would argue with me and say, well, um, Allah just means God, okay? But why is there another word for God referring to, well, the creator, uh, the word that Christians use? And so I said, you cannot use the word Allah because that is referring to a different person, right? not the creator that we're talking about. We're not talking about that person. It was the and so title it was a constant dispute. Yeah, it was a dispute, and it happened with the name of Jesus as well. He wanted to use Isa, and I thought, well, if the only name for Jesus in this entire culture is Isa then I guess that's okay. I will just have to correct who they think Isa is. But that wasn't what was occurring. There was the Islamic word for Isa, and then there was the general population, the Christian term for Jesus, 
which I can't remember what they, I, it was Yesu. something like that. In Bangladesh, it had a different sound to it. Mm. But I, I had to take issue with that because I said, no, I'm talking about that Jesus. I'm not talking about the Jesus as portrayed in, in Islam or in the Quran, which did not die on a cross, who did not die on a cross, well, at least according to Muslims. But I wanted to communicate to the audience. And so there were times where the, the word did matter, but of course, that's in, in, in a where the where the person who you're referring to is now lost yeah. because of the word. But it comes down to you know who do you feel you're you're speaking to? What is your understanding of who this Jesus is, uh, or or Yeshua, if you want to use that term? I could call Jesus Yeshua in deference to the Hebrew roots movement people, but if I'm coming at that from a Mormon set of assumptions. Mm. I could call Yeshua, Yeshua, but if I'm thinking that he is Satan's spirit brother and the offspring, according to Brigham Young, of a physical union between Adam, God, and, and Mary, um, I'm barking up the wrong tree. Mm. You know, uh, So very important for us to understand it's not the label that matters. It's, it's kind of what's in the can. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, follow up as well. Oh, good. Uh, let's check that out. Sorry. Um, uh, thank you, Annie, for that question. It's a uh, really good good question. In Revelation, is it not stated that during the tribulation, even those that call on the name of Jesus will be saved? Uh, so again, I, I guess Annie was looking at this passage in Revelation, thinking that's, that that it, during the tribulation, even those that call on the name of Jesus will be saved. So can people who are in the tribulation, who call upon the name of Jesus... Uh, be saved. Revelation oh, chapter absolutely. 7 and verse 13, speaking to John, then one of the elders answered and said to me, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? He said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. Where's that? That's in heaven. Okay. Yeah. So they came out of the Great yeah. Tribulation. That means that they were in it at one point. And now they're before the throne of God, which is in heaven. Ergo, the transitive property, if they're, they were on earth during the tribulation, they came out of it because of the blood of the Lamb. Where are they now? They're as far in, as John's vision is concerned? They're in heaven. Yeah. Okay, so if you're in the tribulation, that means you can't go to heaven? No, not according to this. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and to me, when that question comes up, I always uh, go back to Revelation 14 and verse 13, where it says, then I heard a voice from heaven. This is the middle of the tribulation period. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, the angels are flying in heaven, telling people not to take the mark of the beast and what the consequences are going to be. It says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Is that a so, glorification of death on principle, or what follows? So, blessed are those who die from now on. In other words... Die in what? These people who die in the Lord... In the Lord. ...are, are going to be saved even in the midst of the tribulation. So you can be in the Lord and in the tribulation. Right. Where did, that, where did that notion come from then? I, I remember when I first started studying eschatology, when I first became a believer... Study of end times. Yeah, end times. Uh, I the watched the Left Behind movies and, you know, the whole Mark of the Beast and all that uh, uh, part of the tribulation period. 
<clears throat> Where did the, the notion come from? from? Yeah, that Second you Thessalonians can't be saved. two, the idea that the one who restrains is taken away until the man of sin reveals himself. The man of sin, across all eschatological, with the exception of idealism schools, believes that the Antichrist's revealing is a fundamental start of the tribulation mm. period proper. Uh, his revealing at the abomination of desolation, more into specific camps. But the idea is that if the Antichrist reveals himself, then the one whom restrains has been taken away. The belief is, and it's an inference upon an inference, but we don't have a lot of time, uh, the idea that because the one who restrains is the Holy Spirit, which we would agree with to a point. He's been taken away. Well, the Holy Spirit is also, according to 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3, the one who makes salvation possible. No one calls Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So if he's restrained, no one can call on the name of the Lord anymore mm -hmm. because that's a work of the Spirit. The problem with that is, first of all, that contradicts very plain statements made throughout the tribulation, but secondly, it's inferring that the one who restrains is the Holy Spirit in his entire work, period. According to Job chapter 33, if the Holy Spirit were to remove himself from creation right. entirely, we'd all turn to dust. Right. That'd be a, quite a plague of the tribulation. Yeah. It would make the bloody water and stuff kind of meaningless. So that's that's where that comes from. Yeah. So you can, so the Holy Spirit could be no longer restraining, but people during the tribulation period could be born again and saved. Yeah, yeah his work in that mm. capacity. But we believe the <clears throat> work of the Spirit that it's referring to be removed is the church. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for your time, and thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the program. Please join us again tomorrow, same place, same time, and God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.